My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and see it or download it for free. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better by writing an iTunes review or by simply making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions and today my very... uh, Amazing guest with the answers will be Jack Andreka, who recently wrote his life story in a fantastic book called Breakthrough. So welcome, Jack. I'm so happy to have you on my show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. So, Jack, it's been a couple of years since our first interview. You were just... uh, turning 16 at the time. Yes. So tell me what's been going on with you for the past couple of years. Uh, So now I'm a National Geographic Emerging Explorer. So they're supporting my research. And then also I'm going out to Stanford University to study bioengineering and then uh, mathematical and computational sciences and uh, hopefully go med school. Wow. That's that's absolutely, absolutely flabbergasting. Let me ask you this though. Some of our viewers may not be familiar with you. So if you were to introduce yourself in just a few words, how would you do that? Uh, So probably what I'm most famous for is I created a new way to detect pancreatic ovarian and lung cancer that costs three cents and takes five minutes to run. And this makes it 168 times faster, over 26,000 times less expensive, and over 400 times more sensitive than our current methods of detection. Boss can detect these cancers in the earliest stages when someone has close to 100% chance of survival. And so far, it's over 90% accuracy at detecting these cancers. So super exciting work there. And uh, yeah, so it could potentially be extended to pretty much any disease out there. And now working on a bunch of new projects. So it's been two years since you first came up with a prototype for that test. And in our previous uh, conversation, which, by the way, I recommend that people watch before they watch this interview. But one of the things that you were saying was a real heartbreaker for you was the long time from invention to market. So can you tell us a little update? It's been two years now. How far along that process are you and how long further do you have to go? Yeah, so we've done preliminary uh, human trials, so super exciting results there, and uh, hopefully we'll be entering clinical trials in the next two to five years, and then maybe I'll be on the market in the next five to ten years. So we'll see what happens, but there is a lot of red tape, but that's generally fast for something like this. Typically, it takes 17 years from bench to bedside. Wow, 10 years is actually fast. My goodness, that's a real heartbreaker. Yeah. And, and and how are the clinical trials going so far? Can you tell us on that? So we're not in clinical trials. We're in preclinical trials. Okay, what's the difference? Uh, so clinical trials are those oversaw by the FDA. However, we want to make sure that this is working before we spend that much money on it. Mm-hmm. And any update on the preclinical trials? Uh, yeah, it has over 90% accuracy at detecting these cancers. So it's going great. And uh, we've tested it on a small patient sample size. And so super exciting stuff. Because uh, one of the criticism that, you know, I, I actually found on your Wikipedia entry of, of all places uh, was coming from a couple of places. Uh, one was from uh, Sharon et al., who supposedly refutes Andreka's claims about specificity of using mesothelin as a biomarker of uh, uh, pancreatic cancer. And then jo- Dr. George Church Uh, who is a well-known professor of genetics at Harvard University, also raised some concerns about both the cost 
the sensitivity and the accuracy of the test. What do you want to say to those criticisms? So um, in regards to mesothelone's accuracy at detecting pancreatic cancer, it's still up in the air. There isn't a scientific consensus yet. That's one of the um, big things about this test is it's really a versatile platform for the detection of pretty much any protein out there. So in case you don't want to detect mesothelone, you can easily detect a different biomarker. And with mesothelone, there are just as many papers supporting it as a new way of detecting these cancers. And it's been shown to be found in the earliest stages. So it's still up there in the air. And so it won't be until like another five to 10 years before you can figure out if this is an accurate biomarker. But prior to that, like besides that, I could like other proteins, for example, the mucins like MUC1 that they could be easily adopted for this test strip, such that it still works for pancreatic cancer. And uh, mesothelone is also a biomarker. It's already proven very well understood to be shown in ovarian cancer and a few other cancers such as mesothelioma. So it does add uh, accurate diagnostic for ovarian cancer, which is notoriously also difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of Dr. Church's claims, um, I was looking at the cost estimate and I still stand by my claims of cost. Um, in terms of the ELISA test, I like... I'm just going off based what I found on the internet and what I found from manufacturer's descriptions. So we'll see what there is to see. We still don't have like a final cost reading, but just based on material cost, it is cheaper. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. But as I was raising a, a somewhat similar point in my first interview, my concern was that even if your cost of producing this test was three cents at a time, my personal concern was that by the time it gets to market, sometimes those things tend to get up by a factor of a hundred, sometimes a thousand in terms of a cost. So a three cents prototype ends up being three hundred dollars uh, on the market in the end. Well, um, one of the great things about this is this is meant to be a screening test. And that's the reason why it doesn't have to have perfect accuracy. It can have mm -hmm. around 90% accuracy because it's to screen the general populace. So every single person would get this test at, uh, for example, their doctor's appointment that they have every year. And if you get positive, then you go for additional screening, such as MRIs and things like that to classify cancer, all those traditional tests. And um, the great thing about that is it also expands your population size that you're testing, your patient body that you're testing this on. Because with these uh, previous tests that you're using, they're used on a very small amount of the population. And so when you're using this test on a much larger population, the reduced cost isn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in the end of the day, like as you say, there's a long time before we actually see it on the market. I'm personally still keeping up the hope that it will be priced affordable, not only for us here in the first world, but everywhere around the globe, because mm -hmm. it does have absolutely fantastic potential to transform the early diagnosis of, of those people who need it the most. But enough about that. Uh, let's talk about your uh, book, Breakthrough. Yeah. I have to say, I really enjoyed your book and I was actually quite frankly, very surprised about how courageous and straightforward and honest you were about discussing some issues such as um, bullying, uh, you know, suicide attempts, being gay, uh, at the same time while being very creative. So let me, let me ask you first, in your own words, what is this book about? Uh, so this book is really about my story from how I got interested in science all the way up until what I'm doing now. And uh, that it was really nice to write and it's all about uh, really inspiring other kids to go out there and change the world and really everyone to go out there and change the world regardless of their passion. You don't have to be in science to get inspired by this. 
But regardless of your passion, show that you can do it. Because think, if a 13-year-old could do this, just imagine what you could do. Yeah, and and so who is this book for? Is it for other 13-year-olds who may be facing the same trouble that you faced? Yeah, so it really is intended for a younger audience. So probably people under the age of 18. But also, really, I think it does speak more broadly. Um, it can pretty much be enjoyed by anyone. I've had equal numbers of people who are over the age of 18 also like it. So um, regardless of your age, it can still act as a nice story that helps inspire you. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And I have to admit, it sure did inspire me. <laughs> so you succeeded and I'm a little bit older than 18. Uh, but let me ask you this then, because you said hopefully it, it aims to inspire other people. Tell us about the first moment that you actually realized you have the power to change the world. Um, probably the first time I realized that I had the power to change the world would be when I was um, probably like 12. Like I was doing this, uh, it was my very first like serious scientific research. There are these things called low head dams, which are like dams that let water flow over them. And they form these really dangerous hydraulic conditions that drown a lot of people every year. So I was like, how am I going to fix this? And using science, I was able to come up with a solution for that. And that really showed me the power of science as well as that, hey, anyone could go out there and do something that could help people. Yeah, and, and actually in your book, you speak about uh, your passions, uh, things such as kayaking, for example, which is how you got to encounter this life-threatening yeah. issue. Tell us a little bit about your other passions other than science. Yeah, so I do a lot of whitewater kayaking. I'm on the U.S. Junior Wild Bar team, and I'm going to be going to national team trials this uh, summer, so hopefully going to be going to the Junior Worlds, and so that'll wow. be super fun. And then also I do like math competitions and stuff that was really fun to do. Um, what else do I do? I do like origami and I hang out with my friends. So. And video games. Yes. Oh, geez. <laughs> I play lots of Pokemon. That is my like guilty pleasure. Oh, that, that's your favorite yeah. video game? Favorite, my only video game that I play. Wow. Okay. So. That's very interesting. Fan fantastic. So um, let's talk about a little bit about the relationship between adversity and genius. Do you think that there's a relationship? Um, Do you think that geniuses or creative people, let's not call them geniuses, but let's say creative people have more than their fair share of adversity to be and become who they are? I think that adversity can definitely shape you and that's one of the big things that shapes uh, the human nature. However, um, I don't think you have to go through adversity to be creative. I think that anyone can be creative regardless of their circumstances. It's just a matter of nurturing that creativity and keeping it. Mm -hmm. And now, speaking of that adversity, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, you had to face very strong bullying and homophobia in school um, as you were growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, ever since I was like 11 or 12, I knew I was like a bit different, not just because of science. And then uh, starting around like age 13, I was like, all right, I'm probably gay. But I'd like look around these science fairs and there's no other gay kids there. And um, like eventually I decided to just come out just because um, like, hey, why not? And uh, like prior to this, I was like being bullied really terribly because I was like the science kid and apparently doing science wasn't the cool thing to do. So then I came out and uh, the bullying only really intensified because of that. And that led to me becoming like really increasingly depressed because I just felt increasingly rejected by not only my friend, like the people who I called friends, but also um, like at science fairs, like I'd look around, there are no other gay scientists. I thought that's not something I can be. I guess I can't do the thing I love. 
And that led to me becoming increasingly depressed. I had these suicidal thoughts. I started cutting my wrists. It was a very dark time for me. But um, what really got me through that is I did just use science as kind of this like second home or sanctuary where I could just do my science and enjoy myself. And um, yeah, it was, but then reaching out to my family and friends and eventually I did get through it, which was really fortunate. Mm-hmm. And you were even sharing how both your parents were very kind of accepting and embracing but your, your brother took a little bit of, of time to get used to the idea. Yeah, my brother was definitely like the stereotypical like lax bro kid. <laughs> so there's a bit of homophobia in that. But eventually he came around and like he's super close with me and like we get along fine. Mm-hmm. And, and do you, th- what have you learned from, from, from that kind of very dark period? Uh, that you get to go through? Um, what I really learned is that a single cruddy moment doesn't define your life. Uh, things will always get better and like it doesn't matter. Like you don't listen to like a few jerks. Don't let them dissuade you from doing your passion because if that I let that happen then I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah and that will be a loss for the world let me tell you. Uh, so so um, tell us a little bit about the process of discovery. I, I mean on your website, your motto is make something cool and change the world. So tell us, how do you approach things and make cool stuff that hope, hopefully will change the world? Um, so whenever I go into a project, I always keep the human element in mind because that is really the reason why I do my research. Because for me, success isn't measuring like how much money you have or how much fame you get it's really measuring how many human lives you can like impact in a positive way. And so that for me is what's so cool about my research is that can help save lives potentially. And so whenever I go into a project, I'm always thinking about who am I going to be helping with this and trying to design it to help them. And uh, then just trying to look at it in a new, interesting way. Yeah. And that, I think you took that actually from your uncle Ted, didn't you? When he said, Jack, think about the patient. Always think about the patient. Yeah, that was uh those like six months that Uncle Ted was in the hospital were really transformative to me. Just not only because it really got me interested in pancreatic cancer research, but also because of the insights it gave me into the patient process. I mean, I really think that patients need to be valued more in their healthcare because they're the ones that are actually benefiting from it. So we definitely have to listen more to patient voices and make it more patient centric healthcare. Yeah, because doctors are supposed to be impartial, uh, objective, unemotional, and sort of divorced, if you will, in a, in a way, from the suffering of their patients. But that's really not how healthcare works. I mean, health is a very sensitive, emotional subject. And doctors, in my opinion, have to show empathy and while being able to make those impartial decisions that will help their patients. And so you have to, but also, for example, maybe the best treatment might not be in the best interest of the patient. Maybe they care more about quality of life. And so you have to know the interests of your patients and the wants and needs of your patients. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. So Jack, I know you've been working on a number of other things after the, the test for cancer. Can you share what those projects were afterwards? Yeah, so the very first project I worked on after that was on this environmental, these kind of like two environmental projects. I created this microfluidic cassette the size of a credit card that detects six environmental contaminants simultaneously for a dollar and it does it in 20 minutes. And then the second part of that project is out of recycled plastic water bottles, I made a filter that filters out 95% of all heavy metals and pesticides in five minutes for 70 cents. 
So it's 128 times less expensive than the conventional activated carbon filters. And it filters out also not only heavy metals and pesticides, but also nanoparticles and all these emerging contaminants. And so it could be used for removal of like things, for example, in like the West Virginia spill that we had last year, it could remove these emerging contaminants. But what you do after that is really cool, because then you just pop in some water, some boiling water for a minute, and all of those metals will actually precipitate out, and you can reclaim them and actually profit from filtering your water. You can sell those back. Wow. And then also you can go and reuse the filter up to 20 times without significant degradation of performance. So it's a really powerful tool uh, that you can really use globally. And so that's the first project that I'm working, or like the first part of the project. And then um, my current research, I'm I was actually doing it down at Georgetown, now I'm at University of Maryland, where essentially I created these things called, that are called nanorobots. And they're super small robots that I program using DNA. They'll actually go in and figure out how to treat your cancer. They can combine like five different therapies at different dosages with two other kinds of like besides chemotherapy. And then also what they can do is they can actually like really personalize your treatment, but they can also actually like alter the genetics of your cells. So for example, I can upregulate or downregulate genes. I can also insert genes. I can make your cells go green if I want. So a surgeon can see them during a surgery or I can make them more susceptible to certain treatments. So we did that with triple negative breast cancer. And then also I could um, essentially make this such that it would like be able to um, like make your cells go through apoptosis. I could do, I could essentially reprogram your cells to do whatever I want. So it could be used in like genetic therapy for like diabetes patients. It could be used for uh, curing like rare genetic diseases, treating cancer. So possibilities are really endless. However, it's going to be a while before they see these on the market, probably at least 20 years. And then um, my second project that I'm working on is using inkjet printers that you just get off the shelf and you use them to print out these biosensors. They change colors in 10 seconds and they cost one one hundred thousandth of a penny. And uh, what happens is you just dip them in the water or blood and you can instantly see what's in that sample. So I can detect different heavy metals, pesticides, different diseases, explosives, whatever I want. And so one project I'm working on is uh, essentially crowdsourcing environmental monitoring where you're really putting the power of environmental monitoring back in the people who are able to control their environment. And so what this can do is I can actually like crowdsource this where the app where all you do is you just take a mobile app and you take a picture of the sample of like the test strip after you've taken the sample and I'll instantly analyze it but also geotag and timestamp that sample. So I can take all these data points together and create an interactive map of the pollution in your area and then be able to tell you exactly where certain contaminants are coming from, how they're impacting the environment and things like that. But also could be used like with epidemiology. For example, I could look at exactly where diseases are cropping up, what strains they are and how best to treat them. So you can trace the Ebola outbreaks in Africa? Yeah, that's a potential application of this. So it's super exciting, the like implications for epidemiology and public health. With a paper test? With a paper test. Super small. And it works? Yes, even. it works. And it's just a little centimeter by centimeter. But so about the size of a postage stamp, and it can test six different environments of contaminants. So when can you start seeing this in the field, like being used? So the environmental one, actually, we're hoping to deploy within the next year. But um, the wow. medical one, that's going to be a while just because of all the red tape. And I mean, yeah, nanobots in your bloodstream, that sounds like something straight out of a science fiction movie. Yeah. Like not something that you would have today, something like really like impossible. No, um, actually there's been uh, some really great work on this. For example, Dr. George Church has been working on it. There's a few other labs that are working on it. And so I decided to jump into the fray. And so now I, I know about, about like 10 groups around the world that are working on it. So it's kind of cool to be 
working on this really cutting-edge stuff, and it's really exciting. And who are you working with on that? So I was working down at Georgetown on that, and then uh, now I'm hoping to continue that at Stanford. Wow, that's fantastic. So, oh, tell us a little bit more about your plans then. So you're going to Stanford, I understand, this, this fall? Yeah, I'm studying bioengineering and uh, computational mathematical science. So a big data type stuff, and so that'll help me with all my projects. So it'll be really interesting. I can't wait to be in the Silicon Valley. So since you are going to be studying computational mathematics and stuff like that, big data, tell us about, I, I'm still f amazed by the, diversity of things you get involved in. I mean, from, from paper sensors to uh, nanobots in the bloodstream, etc. So how do you switch fields so easily? And, and I mean, people spend all their life and they can't come up with one of those things. And you're like barely 18 and you're switching through those fields like it's nothing. So my research interests kind of have like ADHD. Like I, I get um, kind of bored with the subject and we'll just jump to a new thing. So um but I do really like bringing them out into the field, so that's why I'm really trying to like get a lot of them deployed. But um, yeah, I just really use the internet because now we live in a day and age where knowledge is so accessible, and you can just you really have like kind of a touch on like the lifeblood of um, like kind of knowledge that's going on out there, and it's super cool all the stuff that you can learn like pretty quickly. You can pick stuff up pretty quickly from the internet. But there's got to be more than just the internet. I mean, every one of us here, at least in the advanced world, has access to the internet and none of us comes up with the stuff you do. So what else? I'm trying to find the secret sauce here if there's anything like that. I'm not really sure. Like, I just come up with ideas. Just like, I'll be like really bored and just kind of mulling over an idea and then just start sketching random ideas and then all of a sudden it will come to me. It's just kind of these like nice little eureka moments. I think it's called it's like genius. Unwrapping a present on Christmas Day when I come up with a new idea. <laughs> that, that, that's fascinating. I wish I could do that. Um, so, so I, I forgot to ask you, how do you feel about, you know, not only on top of your invention stuff, but writing books? So how do you feel now that you're like an inventor and, and you have a book published and you're not even 18? What's so I didn't really ever think I would write a book. I mean, I was like, this little fantasy I had as a little kid, I'm like, I'm going to write a book someday. And then after my big 60 Minutes interview, like HarperCollins calls and is like, hey, want to write a memoir? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so it was definitely a really interesting experience. And it was just so cool to be able to write this and have other people read my story and really help inspire other kids. Because that's really what it's all about, is creating this legacy of kids that will go out there and change the world. Yeah, and, and I agree. And as I said before, like, it's really inspirational. It's really frank, honest, and genuine and authentic uh, about the issues that you had to face and struggle with, issues that I was never aware of myself and, and really impressed me when I read it. Not only that you had to deal with them, but you, that you have the courage to share it with the world and make yourself vulnerable. So I want to congratulate you for that because I know it wasn't easy. But but it, things like that do, do make a difference. Um, Tell us a little bit more about another issue that I know you care a lot about, STEM. Yeah, so right now as someone who's actively in like high school STEM, I was in a STEM program, although not the best one, um, I really saw that we're teaching STEM in a terrible way. You see, a lot of people perceive science as this cold, hard thing that's just cold, hard facts and figures, and sometimes it is, admittedly. But it's a lot more than that. It's all about using your curiosity and creativity to inquire about the world around you and help create the solutions of tomorrow. And that to me is the essence of what STEM really is. 
And I don't think we're teaching kids like that. I think we really have this bulimic learning model where we try and cram as much information down kids throat as possible to have them puke it up on a test. And that's not what science is. You don't learn science from a textbook. You learn science by doing. So we need much more hands-on activities where you learn by doing and uh, learn through like actual projects. Like if I was learning about carbon nanotubes and antibodies in the traditional class setting, like in a like, university class, I would have never been able to come up with this. I mean, that simply, it doesn't foster creativity and innovation while doing these independent projects on your own really does. So I think that we have to change the, how we're teaching science to more mirror that. A lot more learning by doing, perhaps? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Hands-on Getting your hands dirty, things yes. like that. And yes. I really think the maker movement is really supporting this, but we have to go further because that's not really encompassing of biology and things. We really have to kind of bring the biomaker movement as well. But someone would say, what about the risks, Jack? I mean... You, your brother was making nitroglycerin in, in the basement of your house and the FBI sent you a letter. Hello, like that's not safe, someone would say. How about so, that? So, a bit of parental control is always advised. <laughs> uh, probably shouldn't be making nitroglycerin in your basement and probably take some proper safety precautions. But um, I really think that if we did adopt these in the class, maybe not making nitroglycerin, maybe making something a bit simpler. Um, even those things, those visual things that you can see, you can feel, you can smell, I think those are really uh, formative in teaching someone science. That's what really got me into science from a young age. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, now, tell us a little bit more about the open access that, that you're advocating. Yeah, so I'm a giant proponent of open access. It's one of the like, issues that I care the most about because 90% of all scientific articles are locked tightly behind these paywalls. And that means when you want to access them, you have to cough up $35. And that simply isn't effective. Like, so many people can't access scientific information. It exponentially raises the cost on kids such as myself who are trying to do this research. And we see all these big STEM initiatives that say we need more kids interested in STEM, but when a seminal science article costs $35 and Katy Perry's single costs 99 cents, that's a bit of a mixed message. And I have to admit, I did blow some of my science journal articles <laughs> on like buying the new Taylor Swift album. And I really think that like we have to kind of shift this such that anyone can access information because right now talent is universal, but opportunity isn't. And we really need to change that because the next cure to cancer or the solution to the water crisis might be in the minds of someone who can't get that scientific information or doesn't have the appropriate education. So I really think that by allowing people access this information, we'll kind of go through this renaissance of information because right now 5.5 billion people can't access scientific information or the internet. And by bringing those people online, we'll be able to like almost triple the amount of people doing research. Yeah, you know that there was another absolutely fascinating young man like you uh, just a couple of years old, maybe 26, who unfortunately lost his life in fighting that cause. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Schwartz, I think, was his name. Yeah, and he was definitely one of my idols, what he did with JSTOR. That was just so brave of him. And it was definitely a travesty and a terrible loss when uh, we lost him. And I think it was really unfair of how harshly he was persecuted for yeah. trying to do the academic justice. The threatened him with 35 years in prison. Exactly. And... That's simply not right because he was giving information to people. And I think access to information should be a basic human right. You shouldn't lock up information. The minds of the people have to be free, and that means the minds of everyone, not the minds of a select few who can afford these articles. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and, and indeed, Aaron Schwartz's loss was absolute terrible tragedy. 
uh, and shame, by the way, on on the uh, federal prosecutors, federal prosecutors who MIT pushed him into that. depression and into suicide by by making him worse than terrorists yeah. and, and than anyone. Like it was absolutely horrendous, shameful. Uh, but let me ask you this: one, someone uh, was criticizing you. Uh, on the internet that you're very big on open access and yet when you came up with your own invention you went ahead and you filed a patent do you feel that there's some kind of divergence there i don't think patents are against open access so for example the latest uh one of the greatest breakthroughs uh that's been out there lately uh crispr it's been patented however the thing that they did and that i'm doing as well is making it such that people with uh, who are using it for academic research they can use it freely. But companies, if you're using it for a profit, you have to pay. And I think that's the way to go with patents is if you're doing academic research, that you should be able to use things freely because that's advancing the human condition, advancing our knowledge. But if you're using it for a profit, then someone's effort that went into that, they should also, if you're turning a buck on their innovation, they should also get a bit of that. Very well, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, but CRISPR is a very controversial technology uh, for a number of reasons. Most recently, uh, scientists in China tried to alter the DNA of, of, uh, of human embryos, uh, and none of them actually survived, uh, and they had a number of issues, but it raised a variety of ethical problems with the research. So let me ask you this, Jack, because my blog name is actually Socrates, and I do care very much about ethics. Do you have a sort of a personal ethical code of, 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 of research by any chance or personal ethics that directs you into telling you somehow what's right and what's wrong, what you should and what you shouldn't do? Where's that um, tricky line? Yeah, so it definitely is this giant question in science because a lot of time as scientists, we can often forget the human element among like test tubes and beakers and reactions. But uh, we really have to keep that in mind because that's who our research is actually impacting is humanity. And we really have to think about the implications of our research. Otherwise, we might end up with something like the atom bomb and no one wants that. And so um, really none of my tests have, ever, like none of my research has ever really like breached any like ethical concerns because they're all diagnostic type things. The only one that I could see would be the nanorobots. And I definitely have to be cautious with that as to how I'm letting it be used and things like that, but um, they can potentially be weaponized. I mean, right? Because I figure as you're if creating a vehicle which can carry, let's say, chemotherapy agents to kill a cancer, but they can be loaded or programmed to kill living, healthy cells, couldn't they? I feel as if there's a lot more efficient ways than nanorobots to kill someone. Sure. Because <laughs> you have to inject them into their bloodstream. I feel as if there's much more efficient ways. Okay, granted, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so, let me ask you this. You, you are a, a very kind of famous young man now. You were just barely 16 when I interviewed you for the first time, and now you're a, a charming young man of 18. What's the major lesson that you've taken for the past two years? Always be true to yourself, regardless of what happens, whether you blow up or whether someone shoots down your idea. It doesn't matter. Just always stick to what you think is right and never deviate from that. If you feel uncomfortable, don't go with it and go with your gut feeling because your intuition is sometimes one of your best senses out there. And um, I, that would probably be my best uh, like lesson that I've learned is just stay true to yourself and your message. 
Mm -hmm. That's absolutely uh, fantastic. But but let me let me see if I can connect this to to my follow up question, which is a little bit different, perhaps. But you know, you're a very successful young fellow for for 18 years old. It's it's absolutely mind boggling. But some people would say that's there's a risk associated with success that there's nothing that fails like success that you know you get through so much pressure traveling around the temptations are different and unfortunately in 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 some in many other cases people have crashed and burned later on in life do you feel that there's any such possibility of danger and 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 what do you do to stay grounded um so <laughs> My brother and my parents definitely keep me grounded. They will not let me have a big head. Um, but I really think that as a, like, just as a like researcher, I like being an ordinary kid. I like going to high school and being ordinary. It's nice for a change sometimes. And so kind of balancing, like having a normal life and going around and traveling the world, that's, that's a balance that you definitely need to strike. And everyone has a different balance and a different uh, like kind of priorities. So, um, but for me, I really do value my research. I definitely value my like ordinary life, but also I value my public speaking life and it's nice to be able to have both. And do you think there's any dangers, as I said, associated with being so successful and so famous? I don't think so because Temptations I... are perhaps qualitatively and quantitatively different different or, or whatever else maybe i don't know like i kind of have this internal motivation to just kind of leave a lasting impact in the form of innovations that help improve the human condition globally and that for me is kind of the mission of my life and uh i don't think i'll deviate from that if i do please like backhand me uh, <laughs> but um i i really think that i will stick with that because i love research and i love helping people Wow, Jack, I wish, I hope you never change. That's absolutely fantastic. You have the right focus, that's for sure. Um, so the, my, my last two questions are always the same of my interviews. And the first one is, where can people find more about you and your work? What's the best place? Probably my Twitter feed is one of the best places because then also you can tweet me and I will definitely respond. It's at Jack Andreka, or you can go to my website, jackandreka.com. It has all of this stuff on me. So those are probably the two best places. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And I would, of course, link to them. But, you know, Jack, we managed to basically kidnap you today from Idea City Toronto from the conference where you were giving the opening speech so that I can have you here entirely on my own selfishly for about 45 minutes or so. First of all, thank you very much. But secondly, what do you think or what, what, what do you want to impart on, a, on our audience as the most important message after this fantastic conversation with you. If they were to take a single thing from our discussion today, what do you want that to be? To dream big and not let anyone tell them no, because you're going to be the greatest advocate for your ideas. So if you don't believe in it, then who will? And so just go out there and change the world and be fearless. That's absolutely fantastic, Jack. Thank you very much for Thank being so with much us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah.